a week ago, a week ago today, actually, yep. uh, Jeffrey Jeffrey Epstein was all in the media. He wound up su they said suicide <laughs> or suicided. Mm-hmm. But what are your thoughts on Jeffrey Epstein's death? And was he suicided for fear of exposing some of these inner sex trafficking rings? Uh, oh boy. <laughs> I When he had his first suicide attempt, I don't think there's anybody in the country that didn't expect something to happen to him. Um... Personally, I'm skeptical of the suicide narrative for a variety of reasons. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm intensely skeptical of it. Because here was a guy that was so narcissistic that he was talking with his lawyers about getting bail, getting an out-of-jail you know, out arrangement, so on and so forth. So, in other words, if he was in the process of doing that, this is not someone that's thinking about offing themselves by tying a bed sheet uh, around their throat. Uh, no. That's problem number one. <clears throat> problem number two is the autopsy. Uh, for a while last week we were hearing about we need, you know, we need more information. Well, the whole point of an autopsy <laughs> is you know, you're doing forensic pathology. You don't need more information. You're supposed to get your information from the cadaver <laughs> that, you, that you're working on. <laughs> and I saw this guy um, on YouTube. I actually posted him on my Facebook wall because he, he his name is the Amazing Lucas, and uh, he he went through the whole story and he was just laughing all the way through it because it is so absurd. But um, he pointed out that, and a lot of other people have pointed out, that the cadaver and this business of, of we need more information from the autopsy was, well, like, you know, what do you need more information for? What are you going to do? Spin the two big holes in the back of his head? I mean, you know, what, what really is going on here? And I think he's right. They were waiting for the narrative, for what, what word they were supposed to put out. And mm-hmm. according, not, according to them now, well, it was suicide. Um, the problem with that is the is the hoyad bone or whatever it's called that are in men's necks yeah. was apparently broken, which very seldom happens according to some people. Uh, I wouldn't know, you know, I don't go around hanging people, <laughs> but, <laughs> but according to some people, it's 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 not a bone that's likely to break through, through simple strangulation. But for me, I'll tell you what my real problem here is. And I'm going to sound, in fact, I just blogged about this today. So you're getting it sort of fresh. I'll tell you what my real problem is. My real problem is Rudolf Hess. (laughs) Because if you look at Epstein and Hess, there are a lot of parallels here that are just kind of mind-boggling if you stop and think about it. Both men die in maximum security facilities, in other words, in prisons of some sort. Both men at the time that they are supposedly committing suicide are doing so under circumstances that it's very difficult to commit suicide in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> Number three, both, both men are the most important prisoner in the world 
at the time that they supposedly commit suicide. Number five, both men have odd connections to the British royal family. How convenient. <laughs> How convenient. You know, on and on I could go. You know, there's there's too many problems. So it, it, what I've been calling it was is the Jeff, the Jeffrey Epstein Arkansas murder or whatever it was that happened last week <laughs> because we don't know. And, and to add, you know, to add the, the cherry to the Sunday, the problem is somebody was uh, posting on the Internet the picture of the body that they wheeled out of there and pointing out that the, the nose on, on Epstein's supposed body is curved. It's more of a beak like my nose, and his nose was actually fairly straight. And then the ears are different. And, you know, I can see this for myself. They are. I mean, mm -hmm. they look similar with those exceptions. So it may not have even been Epstein <laughs> that was, they rolled out of there. We don't know. Was that a mainstream uh, leak of that photo? Or, no. Or not leak, but or was that somebody just Joe, Joe Smith off the Internet? Well, that was, I believe that that was... Uh, it looks to me, although I have not found an explanation, it looks to me like it was one of the guards or medical personnel took a photo with their phone and put it out that way. That's the way it looks to me. Okay. But, um, you know, even there, are we to believe that? Or did someone, as you say, could someone just planted a photo to get, you know, all the conspiracy theory, theater and storm going over it. I, I don't know. But the problem is, you know, I, I can even see them doing an operation where they took Epstein out of there after the last suicide attempt. And, you know, once you're on a suicide, you do a suicide attempt and you're on a suicide watch, how do you get off of a suicide watch? This is what I don't understand either. You know, at every little detailed point in this story, we're being fed a great big heaping steaming crock of horse pucky, as far as I'm concerned. And none of it adds up. Absolutely none of it adds up. And then there was Attorney General Barr. Here we go. <laughs> he's down at some do in New Orleans. And he makes the statement, and I forget his exact words, but he makes the statement to the effect, we need to find out why they failed to secure this man. Now, that's a strange turn of phrase, and I've, I've come to believe that these people choose their words very carefully. Under normal circumstances, you would say, guard that prisoner, or maintain the tightest security, but no, he said to secure this man. And that's more, to me, more of an indicator. One of my friends made this observation. That's more of an indicator of someone that you're trying to go get, you know, to secure in that sense of the word, rather than uh, beef up security or stand guard or close watch or whatever you want to call it. You know, so the choice of words there to me was very odd. And then he comes out and he says, and rest assured, none of the conspirators, you know, he, in this matter, should rest easy. So in other words, Barr, Barr had already come to the conclusion that this whole event <laughs> was some sort of conspiracy, you know. 
Um, so none of it adds up to me. I don't know exactly what happened, but number one, I'm I'm uh, I'm ninety eight percent certain it wasn't suicide. If indeed he did die last week, I think he was murdered. And if indeed he was not murdered, if indeed he was alive when they wheeled him out of there on the gurney, as we've been told, and died at a later date, then who did they wheel out on the gurney, assuming that picture is legit? And what happened to that individual? And if there was some sort of substitution, when was it made and where's Epstein? Mm -hmm. And when you start getting into that aspect of the story, that's where it gets interesting. Who would have taken him out of there? Who would have gone or had the motivation, means, and opportunity to do something like that? Well, I can see his Mossad contacts doing it. I can see his British intel, uh, intelligence contacts doing it to save their own butts. Or, conversely, I can see the government doing it to get him into witness protection and have him sing like a canary in return for some sort of deal. Uh, you know, there's any there's any way to play this out, and the problem is, is the data that we do have is 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 so conflicted, and it's so what we do have is so nonsensical. I mean, it's it's another Warren report. It literally is another Warren report, and it's so nonsensical that almost any story that you can put to it right now has some traction, including even the guy offed himself. You know, I, I don't discount that. I, I tend to think that it's very unlikely that a man thinking in terms of working out some sort of uh, bail arrangement is, is all of a sudden going to commit suicide. I, I, I'm not buying it. But I can also see that a man as narcissistic and used to the privileged life that he led, you know, sitting 24 hours a day in a 6 by 8 cell with chrome furniture and nothing to read or write, this is going to drive one a little batty. So, you know, none of this makes sense. My guess, quite frankly, right now, anyway, it could change tomorrow with new information, but right now my guess is someone went in there and got him for whatever reason. And if if I were to bet on it, I would, I would bet that he's in a government safe house somewhere. And it was a nice deception operation. I agree totally, Joseph. Uh, <clears throat> with uh, now, have you looked into Epstein's Zorro Ranch? Yeah, um, I've been trying to follow the case off and on. That ranch is very weird. <laughs> mm -hmm. Supposedly, it has underground, like a band of networks, you know, yeah. underground little facilities and yeah. etc. Well, they know that about the island. And here, here, you know, speaking of the island and the ranch, here's another, here's another little problem. I think it was two days, at best, after he was reported dead. Two days. The FBI is down there raiding his island. Okay? Now, one of the arguments out there is that in a way, him dead, him being dead, helps the government's case because they no longer have to issue search warrants 
and go through the legal process of fighting his lawyers and so on and so forth to be able to go in and do this. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Number two, when the FBI raid story came out, it was being spun as, well, they're going in there and they're collecting evidence. And if you're a follower of the Q nonsense business, uh, all of those people are saying, oh, the government's gone in there and they're getting all the evidence and the arrests are coming any day now. You know, it's kind of like the rapture. It's going to come any day now. And my problem with that is the FBI, this is the same government that destroyed evidence after the Kennedy assassination, destroyed evidence after they massacred the people in Waco, destroyed evidence after the Oklahoma City bombing, destroyed evidence after the 9-11 fiasco. So this is the same government that we're all of a sudden supposed to believe is going in to his island and collecting evidence. They could just as easily be destroying it. Number two, since we're talking about FBI raids, why didn't they do the same thing to his ranch? Yeah. You know, this none of this adds up any way you shake it. None of this adds up. So there's there's something going on here. I you know I'm not I'm not of the same mind with those people that think oh the, this whole Epstein thing is just another created crisis, a theater of distraction, while the government's doing something sneaky in a completely different place, which it could easily be doing. But I don't think I don't think the Epstein thing is small potatoes. He knew too many people. They were all powerful. He had given money to several transhumanist scientific uh, experiments and companies and so on and so forth. Uh, he was friends with a lady whose father was connected to British intelligence and a major British publisher who himself ended up peculiarly dead. He's connected to the Bronfmans. He was connected even to Roy Cohn. Senator Joseph McCarthy's chief counsel, you know, back in back in that day. So I mean, this man. That's not the big one with the Clintons. Well, the Clintons and, and Trump, obviously, but but uh, yeah, this guy was connected to everybody, and he's running this this. As far as I'm concerned, it's all but a certain cinched case. He's running this this childhood sex slavery trafficking thing on top of it all. And let's let's not neglect to mention here's a guy that nobody exactly knows how he made all his money. There's no detailed history. And that to me right there says he was the front for a huge money laundering operation. That's I think where he gets his money. So this is a big story, like it or not. And the problem with whoever did whatever was done <laughs> last week, uh, if they thought this was going to go away, no. It did just the exact opposite. Because everybody's looking at this now. People on the left are looking at it. People on the right are looking at it. Nobody is buying the narrative. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and it's not going to go away. People are going to start digging. Now, um, do you think that there is a link to these elitists that are a part of this sec satanic sex trafficking ring and the many women and children that come up missing across the U.S. and the world? Oh, absolutely I do. Absolutely I do. Look, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll go further. 
if you look back at the history of the last 100 to 120 years, let, let's go 140 years, about a century and a half. If you look at that whole history, there have been constant recurrent events or scandals involving pedophilia, sex slavery, human trafficking, human sacrifice for about 140 years. Yep. There are aspects of this hovering in the background of, of uh, the famous case of Oscar Wilde in the 19th century. There are aspects of this that resurface in a little-known series of um, serial murders in the early 20th century in California called the Wineville Chicken Coop Murders. Uh, clear case of pedophilia going on there. And the guy that was pulling it all off, that they eventually hung for it, was too much of an idiot to have done it all himself. Um, then you had you had the Finders case in the early nineteen, or pardon me, the late nineteen eighties, where you had uh, what was his name, uh, Treasury agent um, Ramon Martinez, that was contacted by police from Tallahassee, who had found seven young children that were dirty, ill-kept, didn't, weren't even familiar with things like knives and forks and spoons and washers and dryers, and two very mysterious men that claimed that they were transporting these children to Monterey, Mexico, to be part of a school for the gifted child. And this treasury agent was put on to the, to the case because there was an address of these people that they apprehended in Tallahassee up in Washington, D.C. Well, when when the local customs got involved, national customs got involved with the D.C. end of the angle, lo and behold, in steps the CIA and says, shut down all investigation, this is a national security matter. So that was the finder's case. Hmm. At about the same time, you had the Franklin scandal break. Remember that one? Yeah. And that one... You had uh, underage teenaged boys and girls, some of the boys from Boys Town in Nebraska, and girls that were being flown by this savings and loan manager, owner actually, in Omaha, who actually sung the national anthem at the 84 and 88 Republican Convention, pardon me, Republican Convention. And this guy was taking these underage kids, flying them out to Hollywood, for orgies, doing uh, orgies and ritual stuff that I, I don't even want to describe. It's horrendous stuff. If with local bigwigs in Omaha, Nebraska, flying them to Washington, D.C., where they were involved with a, a former CIA operative, filming acts with the high and mighty, and even being given tours of the White House, you know, um, it was big, and by the time it, you know, by the time it got to the White House part of it, then everything was shut down. So there's another case where you have indications of government involvement, super wealthy people with access to airplanes, with access to to uh, underage kids, flying them around the country doing all of this stuff and an element of once again an element of of occult ritual practice so that's the franklin scandal 
Go to the Jimmy Savile scandal in the United Kingdom. What do you see? You see the same thing. Someone high up in the government, even knighted by the queen, involved in luring the high and mighty, and some people allege, and I think that it's a, a, a definite case that the former Prime Minister Edward Heath had been ensnared in that, and that was in the 70s. So you've got that scandal. You've got um, the Jerry Sandusky Penn State scandal that broke a few years ago. And again, the same sort of thing. In this case, you know, football team members were being recruited into mm -hmm. this ring. And they weren't underage, but it's the same MO. And so let's look at it. You've got beginning beginning in the 19th century with Oscar Wilde, and dig and sniff around that, and you'll discover there's something going on in the background there, and they kind of tossed him to the wolves to keep the ring itself a secret. You begin with there, and you end up here with Epstein, and what you have are several apparently isolated incidents, but they all have the same MO, they have the same types of people involved, there's big money involved, and in many cases, there's some sort of government connection. And what that means to me, Mike, is that you're looking at isolated incidents. It's like an iceberg with several peaks to the iceberg. And you've got the water line, and the, the peaks pop up or poke up above the water line, and they look like they're separate icebergs. But underneath the surface, it's yeah, one big chunk of ice. So what I think we've been looking at is you're looking at a global phenomenon because it requires money, it requires a hidden transportation system, it requires a system of inventory control, and I hate to put it so bluntly, but that's what you're, that's what you're dealing with. You've got to track all of these people through the system. What do you need for that? Well, you need either accountants or computers. You've got lots of money, you've got airplanes, you've got secret facilities. I think you're looking at not only a sex, slave, sacrifice, organ harvesting operation, hmm. I think you're looking at a, quite literally, a, a slave labor pool supply for whatever secret projects you've got going on underground that you just want to, you know, speed things along. All of all of the Nazis, you know, during World War II, dump all these people underground and have them dig all these tunnels for you. Yeah. Um, you've got a ready-made supply right there of all of your human test subjects for your experiments. They're powerless. They can't object. So in other words, I think you're looking at something that's designed to fulfill several objectives all at the same time. It's for the purposes of blackmailing the rich and powerful or letting them get their kicks. It's for the purposes of money laundering. It's for the purposes of human experimentation. It's for the purposes of slave labor. It's for the purposes of using these people to uh, carry contraband, whatever it may be, drugs, you know, whatever. Uh, some of them, I think, are probably being trained uh, for various roles, assassins, whatever. Um, kind of like Manchurian candidate type? Manchurian candidate type stuff, yes. 
uh, I think I think I think this network is being used to accomplish several objectives. In other words, all at the same time. That's why it's so big. And it's, it's hard to wrap your head around it. It's very there, hard. There's so many. There's so many different variables at play. There's so many different webs within this enormous spider web. Well, it, it's hard for people to wrap their heads around because most of us just can't conceive of anyone being a part of something so evil and foul. I mean, that's the bottom line. But again, you know, going back to what we said earlier, you're dealing with people whose whose view of of humanity is so truncated and who have an ideology of no restrictions on science because, you know, by golly, we're out to save humanity and we're going to do whatever we have to do. And if that means, you know, killing a lot of people in the process. <laughs> the ends justify the means. The ends justify the means. And um, it's, it's hard for people to wrap their heads around. But, yeah, I think it's a, I, it has to be. For any of these, for any one of these events, Mike, to to work for the period of time that they were working, you had to have at some point some level of government or governments turning a blind eye to it or being willing participants in it. There's there's no two ways about it. There's no two ways about it. Now, you're talking about money money laundering a while ago, mm -hmm. because, like I said, there's so many variables at play within this big sparta web. Uh, what about drug trafficking? Oh, easily with with with, with the because you, you said there's money involved. I mean, there's there's money that's involved with all of this, right? Do you think that some of it is funded or through all this uh, money? Because, you know, one reason we went to what they say, we went to the Middle East or Afghanistan was the opium, the right. opi opium fields. Right. Do you think that some of this is coming from this clandestine group that is on the black market selling these drugs? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Look. Um, What's that guy that died? Talked a lot about like this. Uh, Gary Webb, are you thinking? No, about? not Gary Webb. He was a police officer. I forgot his name. He'll, he'll, he'll pop up later, though. Well, let's put it this way. I, I did a couple books. Um, one of them is called Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations. And a lot, of that, a lot of that book was preoccupied with the idea that there's been in place, at least since World War II, if not a little bit before World War II, a hidden system of finance. And the thing that put me on to the, that idea, quite frankly, were all those bearer bonds scandals that broke between uh, 2006 and then 2010 or so. Mm -hmm. And the, the sums of money, uh, there, were, there were essentially three bearer bond scandals that, that caught my attention. The one that I called the Japanese bearer bond scandal, then the Spanish bearer bond scandal, and then a subsequent Italian. And the, the sums of money involved in those scandals were so astronomically huge. Two, two, I think it was $2 trillion in the case of the Italian one, $6 trillion 
in the case of the Spanish Barabon scandal. And the government at the time said, and even President Obama was asked about this in a press conference, that the government said that, no, the United States government has never issued any bearer bond in denominations of a billion dollars. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the bonds themselves, if you look at them, all have these little deliberate errors in their printing. And then finally, they they keep saying that these, therefore, are counterfeit bonds. And that's my problem. Because counterfeiters never counterfeit things that don't exist. You don't counterfeit a $7 bill and then go out and try and spend it. You counterfeit stuff that exists and go out and spend it and try to get real money. And that's where you make your money in counterfeiting, is you swap bad paper for good. Okay? Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a little bit like what a central bank does. But, but, but anyway. Bingo. But in the pro, and I'm getting around to, back to the drug trafficking and sex trafficking rings here, because in the course of investigating these bearer bond scandals, one of the things I ran into was some research by Peggy and Sterling Seagrave in a book, a wonderful book on the subject to read called Gold Warriors. And they pointed out that in the criminal underground, the word gold is code for drugs. And that's when it became clear, because all these gold-backed bearer bonds that were part of these bearer bond scandals, what I think the collateral to all these bonds was, wasn't bullion, it was drugs. It was slaves. It was people. It was human organs, body parts, stem cells. That's the gold that these bonds represent. So in other words, I think, I think this, the reason that the Epstein story is so huge is look what you have. You have someone that's allegedly a financier, worked at, for a period of time at Bear Stearns, just coincidentally right before the financial meltdown. And what else is he involved with? Oh, he's involved in human trafficking. How so how convenient, how convenient, how convenient. So in other words, what I'm suggesting is the one aspect of the Epstein story that nobody is latching on to is what I think is probably the big story here. He's a part of that hidden system of finance. And he's, he knows or knew, depending on how you want to interpret the events last week, he knew what the collateral was behind all of these securities that are floating out there. And I mind you, mind you, when I'm talking about these bearer bond scandals, I'm talking about stuff that one way or another is awfully fishy paper, and everybody admits that, including me. But stop and think about it. We have right now, at this moment in time, anywhere from 14 to 17 quadrillion 
dollars worth of derivatives. I don't even know how many zeros that has. <laughs> that's about that's about ten to sixteen times the entire gross domestic product of the planet. Mm. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. <laughs> well, my point is, you've got bad paper on the books in most of the major banks of the world. What's propping it up? What's the collateral? Drugs. Drugs, humans, sex, and whatever it is they want to go out there in space and mine. And they could all be related. And I would love to have you and Catherine Austin Fitz in a room. Well, listen, she and I talk about this quite a lot. And we noticed, we, we came at this, we came at this problem, we sort of backed into each other, you know, like, like uh, two cartoons in a dark room with our flashlights and we, we back into each other because we're looking at the same thing from two different angles. Um, you know, her, her take was, well, there's all this missing money in the federal government. Where the heck is it going? <laughs> you know, if it's, if it's in the system, it should be showing up as hyperinflation, but it's not. And I'm out here thinking, who in the name of sense counterfeits? Stop and think about this for a moment. Most normal counterfeiters that you and I know are going to counterfeit things like $100 bills, $50 bills, $20 bills. We're not going to go around counterfeiting billion-dollar denominated bearer bonds and hoping that we're going to find some schmuck to take a sharp discount on those bonds and unload them for a cool $10 million. There's not many people in the world with that kind of pocket change. So if we're dealing with a counterfeiting scam, this one sure doesn't make any sense when you get right down to it. So in other words, again, you don't counterfeit things you, that don't exist. That's my problem with this. So where the heck is all of this money going? It should be showing up in the system somewhere. It's like electricity. You put X amount of power in at, the, at this end, and you get X amount of power out at the load end, right? <laughs> but if you put a little extra electricity in somewhere during the circuit, you're going to get more power out at the load end than you're putting in at the front end, and yet we're not getting more power out at the load end. But we know there's a lot of juice there somewhere in the system, so where is it going? So this is the problem. We're, 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 we're both of us looking at the same thing. And we, we were sitting right here in my kitchen one night trying to figure this out. And she says, well, I, I'm hesitant to tell you what I think is happening. And I says, oh, well, probably as hesitant as I am. And she says, well, I think it's going off world. I said, bingo. <laughs> bingo. And her idea is it's going off-world in the form of uh, a tithe or a tribute. And if you're, if you're thinking in those terms, then it could easily be the case that with these sex ring, pedophilia, whatever these rings are, that some of these people are quite simply literally being taken off-world. To do whatever for whomever, and 
to everybody watching this, we talked a lot about that last year. And I will give a link in description for that interview. Very fascinating. I think it has about 80,000 views so far within only about a year. And we may touch on that later mm -hmm. uh, this evening. But with uh, going back, mm -hmm. and I don't want to get too much involved with the UFO alien uh, topic right now. But when I said with some of these women and children that are coming up missing across the U.S. and the world, mm -hmm. let's say, and maybe let's say they are returned back home because some of them are returned. Mm -hmm. They return back home. Do you think that possibly they are implanted with these false memories that they were abducted by aliens? Sure, they, sure, sure. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on that without, you know, cause we're going to talk about a little bit more about that later. Well, here's, here's my problem. I'm not, you know, I'm not a big, uh, I, I'm not heavily into the field of ufology as I like to call it sometimes, but, um, I do, you know, I know people, you know, Whitley Strieber and, and people like that, that have, claimed to have had abduction experiences and I know them well enough to know that they're not lying to me you know Whit most, Whitley, most Whitley, Strieber, Whitley Strieber is a man of very good character mm -hmm. and he himself has tried any number of ways to rationalize and interpret whatever it was that happened to him and he includes the idea that well maybe these were implanted memories I don't know but whether they were implanted or not, my, my interest in these cases is you see the same pattern. What's the pattern? Well, in many of these alien abduction cases, going all the way back to, to Betty and Barney Hill, for example, they were interested in taking samples of human body fluids and DNA, skin scrapings, and so on and so forth. And if you expand on that principle, look what you have going on with many of these people in these sex slave trafficking rings. They are, in a certain sense, harvesting their, <laughs> you know, I'm going to sound like that nutty general in Dr. Strangelove, they're in a certain sense harvesting their bodily fluids in all of these sex acts. They are literally collecting lots of DNA. So you've got almost the same MO between these alien abduction things. And in many cases, you also hear stories of women being impregnated and then their babies taken from them, you know, by aliens or whatever. And you see the same thing going on in these sex trafficking rings. Women women being impregnated and then their babies either being aborted or taken from them after birth or what have you. So it's the same MO. And if it's the same MO and you've got governments involved and you've got intelligence agencies involved and they're experimenting in these, uh, these programs with mind manipulation, sure, absolutely, I can believe that some of these memories are either deliberately implanted or they're subjected to some sort of uh, regimen 
where a real memory is twisted in some fashion. Because let's remember the other thing that our wonderful government and, and clowns in America did back in the 50s with MKUltra. They had Dr. Ewan Cameron, of Rudolf Hess fame, by the way, up there in Canada doing his psychic driving on so-called psychiatric patients, literally keeping people asleep for weeks on end with cocktails of drugs, repeated tape recordings over and over and over again, 24 hours a day, literally trying to unmake one soul and re-implant another one. The Nazis were experimenting with that. Absolutely. With, with amphetamines and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't put anything past these people that, yeah, some of these alien abduction things may be twisted or implanted memories in some form or fashion because they have spent so much time and effort in, into trying to perfect these mind manipulation technologies. I don't doubt it for a moment. It's another way of torturing these people. And what does all this sound like? Well, we just talked about this with the transhumanist agenda. Right. You're talking about human organs. Right. And uh, this sex trafficking, the ex exotic experiments that are being done, uh, either abductions, mm -hmm. you know, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. uh, and just like I stated before, it, with the artificial intelligence uh, and the transhuman and mm -hmm. humanist agenda, mm -hmm. it makes one giant picture, yeah. Joseph. Yeah, it does. It does. There's some, there is some uh, entity that is at war with humanity and is trying to destroy it or change it fundamentally. Uh, and, you know, in the tradition I'm from, it's Satan. <laughs> you know, clear and, that's pretty simple. But when you get right down to it, it what they're doing is diabolical. So, you know, I, I think there's a spiritual component to this that you'd have to be blind not to see. Do you think this entity, maybe asking you to speculate some, do you think this entity is possibly physical in form or like in Star Wars, the Force is some type of hmm. something in the, just like you can't see the internet, Wi-Fi, but exists? Well, one of, one of the interesting things when you get back into... Uh, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, even some of the um, Mesopotamian religions, is this idea that these spiritual beings or intelligences or angels or demons, whatever you want to call them, have the ability to take on, for periods of time, take on a physical manifestation of some sort. And it's a real physical manifestation. It's not a hologram. It's not a projection. It's a real physical, tangible thing. Uh, so I don't have any. I don't have any difficulty with that idea. Again, we're we're back to the idea that that one form of matter can permute into another. And if you get right down to it, matter itself is is a kind of a different stage of energy. So. Even physics teaches us that. So I, I don't have any difficulty with that. Have you heard of Tracy Twyman? Yes. Do you think 
the researcher Tracy Twyman was murdered also because she was getting too close to the truth within these inner circles of the sex trafficking ring? Well, it could be. Here's what I find suspicious about her. Um, she did a lot of research through the years on the occult basis and symbolisms of money. All you have to do is follow the money, too. All you have to do is follow the money or the symbols on it. <laughs> um, if there was one thing that may have got her into trouble, I suspect that may have been it. Uh, because some of her research in that area is uh, kind of breathtaking when you boil it right down to it. No. Um, the other thing that could have been a factor is that she herself was, uh, as far as I've been told, was involved in some of these occult practices herself. Mm -hmm. And, you know... I've heard people tell me that, well, these people are using magic. We've got to use magic to fight them. And my response is always to say, you don't want to go down that path. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of Russian roulette. Well, the reverse magic was done in our culture and in our history. But people don't want to look at it that way. Stop and think about it. Where did the church build churches? On pagan sites. Mm -hmm. What are Christian holidays? Well, they are on usually or close to some sort of pagan holiday. Mm -hmm. So in other words, reverse magic was very definitely being done and for specific reasons, but with very different intention and with very different, so to speak, prayers or spells accompanying it. So if you want to look at reverse magic, then really dig into the details of that history. I, I attempted to show a bit about that in the Microcosm and, and Medium book. But if by reverse magic you mean you're going to go by, you know, a grimoire of Paracelsus or <laughs> whoever and, you know, do some ritual of that nature and think that you're going to fight it that way, uh-uh, ain't going to work. Do you think this is just the beginning to more of these sex traffic? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know if I cre created this term. I don't know. But sex trafficers. Do you think that this is just the beginning of these sex trafficers to be exposed? Um, that's a difficult question. Um, or do you think that they're going to continue with these experiments well they're going to continue one way or another they they will i mean again i go back to what i said earlier if you look at transhumanism if you look at this business of of human slavery human trafficking human sacrifice and so on this has been going on for a long time the difficulty is it went underground and what we're seeing happen is by dint of, of the information age and so on, people are able now to connect dots much more quickly than they used to be able to. So the difficulty now is, can we keep the momentum going and the pressure going to expose this stuff and put an end to it? 
I'm moderately optimistic that this is going to happen at some point for the simple reason that whoever did whatever was done with Epstein, that is such a huge case, they may have made a big strategic error because it's not going to go away now. You've got too many people now connecting dots between mind manipulation technologies, occult practice, um, human trafficking, si hidden systems of finance, and all of this stuff. You've got too many people looking at this stuff for it to go away. They're literally, to shut it up now, they're going to literally have to track down every last one of us having conversations like this and put us in their camps to keep us quiet. And the moment they start doing that, more people start noticing, oh, XYZ just suddenly disappeared, don't know where they went. There'll be an uprising. Yeah, there's, there's going to be more people asking more questions. So I think we may be at a turning point. Now, to go to Nazi Germany, like I st stated many times, with your research <coughs> and everything we've talked about today, Everything is one giant picture mm -hmm. in the same web. Mm -hmm. Do you think that these sex trafficking elites have similar ideologies to the occult that the Nazis did? And possibly with maybe eugenics, um, human experiments, and things like that, pretty much the same uh, ideo ideological mind frame, uh, I guess, agendas. Yeah. Um, I, I would I would expand it and say that I think that there are ideological parallels beyond just broad occult parallels, uh, because, like I said earlier, you have the technical. You have the technocratic mindset in Nazi Germany, big time. I mean, let's remember what Nazi Germany used its computers for. I mean, they had computers, you know, at, at the uh, Deutsche Reichspost. Uh, well, they were using those computers to make calculations for their A-bomb project. That was part of it. But the vast amount of you know, data punch cards and magnetic tape that they were processing on their computers was for Holocaust victims. They were literally tracking people through their network of death camps and slave labor camps. Literally. That's why they had the numbers tattooed. That number corresponded with the card and, you know, you know the Germans, when they, when they set out to do something, they got to have a plan and they got to be organized. And that's what that was for was tracking that whole uh, grisly machinery of death. And if you, look at, if you look at Epstein, what do you see? Well, you see someone that was interested in that sort of stuff. Why? Why? Well, if you're running hundreds of thousands of people around the world, and that literally is your collateral, if that literally is your inventory, you've got to have a means of tracking it. Mm -hmm. And probably now it's the good old computer implant 
you know, the GPS yeah. tracking chip and so on and so forth. Um, so that's, that's another parallel. Yet another parallel is, is the basic economic philosophy that these people espouse. What did the Nazis espouse? Well, fascism. What's fascism? It's a form of socialism where corporations retain ownership of their plant, but the government tells you what to do with that plant. So if you look at, if you look at the, modern, the modern technocratic culture and you look at the corporations, what is their basic economic philosophy? Well, it's a form of socialism. They want to be able to track and control every aspect of an employee's life. You see it in their behavior every day. You get corporations calling people in for corporate meetings on their days off. You know. And that to me, that may sound trivial and little, but that is part of their that is what manifests itself as a result of their basic fascist thinking. That the corporation is the be all and end all. It's the final summary statement of human collective organization. So you see a kind of reverse fascism where corporations are going to retain ownership, not only of themselves, but ownership and directorship of governments. So there's that parallel with Nazi Germany. I mean, you know, I could go on and on. There's, there's gobs of parallels between what's going on now and, and what was going on in Nazi Germany. All right, with the Vatican. Right. I've been told or come across that age of consent at the Vatican is pretty pretty young. I forgot the age. Um, are there any connections with the certain Catholic priests, Vatican, um, certain individuals within the Catholic community that are a part of these inner sex trafficking rings? <sighs> Well, you've, as you know, you've certainly had stories of priests and, and other clergy hierarchs in some cases uh, involved with it. And there's enough there to make me suspect strongly that there's some aspect of this network that is deeply, deeply embedded. And I don't mean just within the Roman Catholic Church. I would say that pretty much every ecclesiastical body has had some degree of infiltration. And I say infiltration advisedly because in the case of the Roman Catholic Church, to me it just does not make sense that you cannot see the result of a policy of enforced clerical celibacy that results in this stuff. Um, the churches that allow a married clergy, you know, the Anglicans do, the Orthodox sort of do and sort of don't, uh, these incidences are, are much less pronounced, although they happen, but they don't happen to near the extent and quantity that you see going on within the Roman Catholic Church. So I think part of it is simply the policy. Um, but that said, I don't know if you're familiar with the old uh, Roman Catholic priest, Father Malachi Martin. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a very, very decent man. 
and he was very, very traditional in his theology and his approach to Christian piety and so on. And Father Malachi, at the end of his life, wrote a novel, which, if you read the preface to it, it's called Windswept House. If you read the preface to the novel, he says that he has deliberately fictionalized actual events. And if you are familiar with the body of his writings and work, uh, he, he was almost invariably ahead of the curve by about 10 to 15 years. For example, just one small example, in a book of his called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Catholic Church, which appeared toward the end of the 1970s, he predicted that there would be, within the next 10 to 15 years, an obsession with stories of blood relatives of Christ, or Christ having sired children, and so on and so forth. And bang, right on time. You get Holy Blood, Holy Grail, you get Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code, and all of this stuff. And he was, again, ahead of the curve because he pointed, you know, he said that this is all going to be based on a kind of a return to and misinterpretation of a group of people that in the Greek are known as the Thesposini, the relatives of the Lord. And that's one small example. And I could give you many, many from, from his books. But his two most significant books he wrote as novels. And in Windswept House, he begins the novel with an actual human sacrifice that is being performed, two human sacrifices, in fact, that are being performed as parts of a, an occult ritual, both in Rome and in Charleston, South Carolina, at the same time. They're coordinated, they're synchronized rituals, and that these rituals were performed prior to the uh, beginning of the Second Vatican Council, and they were being performed by apostate clergy within the Roman Church for the express purpose of trying to empower themselves to create a massive revo revolutionary change at the Second Vatican Council. Now, you can, you can laugh at the idea but if you go back to the 19th century, and I wrote about this in the uh, epilogue to Financial Vipers of Venice. If you go back to the 19th century and all of those, uh, I'll be very blunt, Masonically inspired revolutionary movements in the middle of the 19th century in Europe, in Italy, that movement was known as the Carbonieri. And one of its major officials was a fellow by the name of Piccolo Tigre, the little tiger. And there is a document that's, for all intents and purposes, kind of the testament of Piccolo Tigre, where he's outlining the revolutionary program for Italy. And the program is gain control of the seminaries, with clergy who owe their real allegiance 
not to the Roman Church or to its teachings, but to this kind of uh, Illuminati-style masonry. Uh -huh. And over time, he says, he, we will eventually get, and these are his words, a pope according to our wants. Now, to me, that's very significant because when he wrote those words, it was in the late 1840s. Later in that century, you had the First Vatican Council, which was the council in 1870 to 71 that made papal infallibility an actual dogma of the Roman Catholic Church. In other words, it had not been a dogma up until that time. And the Pope at that time was a fellow by the name of Giovanni Cardinal Mastai Ferretti, Pope Pius IX. Well, Mastai Ferretti, if you dig a little into his background, it appears that he may have been an initiate of a lodge. In other words, he may himself have been the very Pope who <laughs> became infallible and wanted to become infallible, mm -hmm. may himself have been one of these uh, clergy with a dual allegiance, let's put it that way. Uh, this is what I think has happened in the Roman Church. I think you have uh, a network of people that were deliberately infiltrated into the Roman Church in the 19th century, particularly in Italy, particularly in Austria, particularly in Germany, and that's significant because it's from those countries that you had most of the major push for the reforms at the Second Vatican Council. I think you had a group of people that were deliberately infiltrated into the Roman Church and into the Jesuit order by these groups. And once this was done, it then becomes kind of a self-sustaining phenomenon. That's the that's the human sex trafficking aspect of the story. The other aspect of the story is the financial one, because as I've said, these rings are intimately tied to major finance, to major financial institutions. Well, you can't get much more major financial institution than the Vatican. <laughs> so, so if you go to, if you go to um, the 20th century, and all of the scandals that surrounded the Vatican Bank. It's incredibly and intriguingly interesting to me that Pope John Paul I had been the Cardinal Archbishop of, v of Venice. Albino Luciano was the Cardinal Archbishop of Venice when he was elected Pope John Paul I. So in other words, you've got banking right there, folks. I mean, you've got, you know, old Italian nobility right Follow there. The Follow the money. So John Paul I becomes Pope, and he's Pope for like 30 days, you know, before he's found dead in his apartments. And he had been in good health. He wasn't in, in poor health. But he was, very interestingly, he was a traditional Pope, in that his allegiance was not divided. And there were powerful rumors circulating in the Vatican at the time that he was going to clean house. And the first thing he was going to clean house was the Vatican Bank. And then, lo and behold, he ends up dead. The distance, right? Well, and the other thing is, shortly before his death, Cardinal Benelli, 
who was at that time a very powerful cardinal in the Curia, Cardinal Benelli, had gone to Pope uh, John Paul I with a list, and this is in David Yollop's book, In God's Name, with a list of suspected Masons within the Vatican hierarchy. And, you know, this is like two days before he ends up dead. And one of the names on the list was allegedly Bishop Paul Marcinkus, the American guy who was the head of the Vatican Bank at the time. <laughs> at the time. So, you know, and Marcinkus, you know, <laughs> after after John Paul I is conveniently Arkansited, because that's exactly what I think happened to the poor guy. Um, after, after that, you get John Paul II, who brings in Ratzinger, you know, Ratzi the Nazi, as, as I like to call him. And all of that, all of that investigation is just stopped. It doesn't go anywhere. Marcinkus stays on for a while at the Vatican Bank, and then he becomes the personal head of John Paul II's security. So, okay, what does this tell you? Well, if Benelli's allegations were true, we now have a Roman Catholic bishop who, oh, by the way, also happens to be a Freemason in charge of papal security for <laughs> Pope John Paul II. Oh, by the way, he used to run the Vatican Bank. You know, and the Vatican Bank, while we're on the subject, this is one of the most... Uh, if you can think of a central bank, because it's both a central bank and a depository bank and bank of accounts for the Roman Catholic Church and on and on we could go, if you if you want a corrupt financial institution, that's it. Because, well, for example, where does the Emperor Hirohito put all of that loot that he managed to steal out of China during World War II? Well, he puts it in the Vatican Bank. You know? uh, so, you know, they'll do business with anybody. Including Hitler and Hirohito, <laughs> but um, on top of this, one of the interesting things that Malachi Martin said in his first novel, which is called Vatican, and I've always urged people, particularly people who are thoroughly familiar with the details of of modern day Roman Catholic Church history, is to read that book. Because every single character in it is very thinly disguised. You can tell who he, exactly who he's really talking about by reading that book. And you can tell because there's enough details with the real character that you can make the connection. But it's the additional details that he supplies in the book that makes you scratch your head. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, one of the additional little, deta <laughs> little details that he supplies is that after the Italian uh, Revolution in, in the late 19th century that unified Italy under the House of Savoy? This is what people forget. Germany and Italy have been united countries only for less than a century, okay, for a little more than a century now. So, you know, where before in Central Europe you didn't have any major power, now you've got two, <laughs> okay? So... So Italy is unified under Giuseppe Garibaldi, who incidentally was one of the Carbonari, and he's one of these revolutionary masons at the time. The House of Savoy takes over, becomes rulers of Italy. As a result, the papacy lost the papal states 
and by dint of losing the papal states, lost its connection to high finance. So in the novel, <laughs> Malachi Martin points out that under the pontificate of Leo XIII, who was the pope that succeeded Pius IX, very late in the 19th century, well, under Leo XIII, a, according to Martin, a bargain was struck to allow the Vatican to have access to the central banks of Europe in return for a Masonically approved delegate who had the right of veto over anybody elected in papal conclave. Let me repeat that. That's huge. A Masonic delegate who had the right of veto over anyone elected in papal conclave. And he points out something that most people don't know. That veto was exercised, eventually, by a, a kind of telephone hotline in a little room that's behind the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican. And it's there, it's really there, that allows you to spy on what's going on inside the Sistine Chapel. And that veto has been exercised a couple of times in the 20th century. I know of one very famous case. So again, you know, Martin is, Martin is telling you that there's some sort of deep, dirty, shady agreement between high Vatican finance and Freemasonry. You know, they're supposed to be moral enemies that's working behind the scenes here, and that's what the corrupting influence inside the church is. Take it for what you will, but if you do research, when I first read this, I thought, wow, this can't be. But I started doing a little research, and it turns out that there was indeed a family in Italy that were more or less in the early 20th century, they were called the Pope's Men, because this was the family Italian princes that had direct but very hidden control over the Vatican Bank. In other words, whoever it is that you see is being listed as the head of the Institute for Religious Operation, which is the official title of the bank, whoever that person is, that's likely a figurehead for this group of nobility in the background that are, op pardon me, operating behind the scenes. I know the name of the family. I'm not going to I'm not going to say it on, on the record. But uh, the, the interesting thing is when you start digging into all of the details of what's been happening in the Vatican, particularly with respect to finance, and particularly with respect to some of these pedophilia scandals, what you start noticing is names start to overlap. Think of Cardinal Pell in Australia. Well, what was he? Well, he was responsible under Pope Francis for some of the Vatican's finances. And what's he doing right now? Well, he's spending time in an Australian jail for pedophilia. So there's one huge case of overlap right there. So yeah, I think there's something, uh, something deep, dark, and murky going on inside the Vatican, but I think that that murkiness is not just simply homegrown Vatican-style murkiness. In addition to that, it's also there's an external link 
to all of this other hidden financial activity. And here's here's <laughs> here's the icing on the cake, <laughs> courtesy of Catherine Fitz, because. When I was still living out in California, she came by to do, you know, one of our recordings for her Solari Report wrap-ups, and we were watching the Vatican at the time, trying to figure out, you know, is this new pope going to be a good guy or a bad guy? So we started looking at the Vatican Bank. <laughs> and <laughs> you can't make this up, folks. <laughs> we discovered that Francis... In his early, his earliest efforts to clean that nest of vipers out, had appointed, and I forget the name of the accounting firm, some some internationally known accounting firm, you know, that does audits of record for major international institutions, like the Bank of International Settlements. <laughs> so in other words, Francis had appointed the same auditor of record for the Vatican Bank as was the auditor of record for the Bank of International Settlements. And oh, by the way, yes, Lloyd's of London, too. <laughs> you know, so... Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna clean out the Vatican Bank by having the auditors for the Bank of International Settlements do it. Uh -uh. <laughs> that dog don't hunt in, <laughs> in my book. <laughs> oh man, it, it, it seems like another piece of the puzzle just keeps getting. Yeah, the more uh, the more pieces the more you add to this at. puzzle, the bizarre it gets. Now, uh, before we wrap things up for this segment. Mm -hmm. uh, since this is not just about sex trafficking and it's about many dark avenues within these circles. Hmm. Now, one would be child sacrifice, mm -hmm. or maybe just human sacrifice, mm -hmm. but child sacrifice is very common. It uh, especially goes back to ancient times, correct? Oh, yeah. Now, I guess my question is what would be the means or purpose of these sacrifices um, are they are they sacrificing these these children to or these people to their gods or or some other type of entity out there I know it gets deep and dark and it's, it's hard to kind of wrap the perfect question to ask but they in in the case of actual hardcore black magic ritual mm -hmm. yes they are being sacrificed very explicitly you can see it in their quote-unquote liturgical books they are being sacrificed quite literally either to Moloch or to Baal in mm -hmm. some cases to Satan or Lucifer in some other cases in other words these are the names that are mentioned by name um, that's at that's at the deepest darkest uh innermost circle of it but i also go back to what i said earlier you are trying not only to traumatize the victim you're trying to traumatize the perpetrator and the reason for doing that is you are trying to shock the medium by shocking the observer of the physical medium if you can, you know, we're back to plain physics here. 
If the observer determines the results of a quantum mechanics experiment before the experiment is even performed by determining what they're looking for, then if you scramble the observer's perceptions, that's bound in their thinking to have some sort of macrocosmic effect, and that gives them the power over that individual, over that group. And once you have power over human beings, you begin to affect the reality itself. Well said, Joseph. We could keep going on with this topic. <laughs> yeah. Same with artificial intelligence, transhumanism, uh, these dark inner workings of these Satanists, these elitists, whatever you want to call them. Uh, but I appreciate it, man. This was awesome. We're going to take a little break, and we're going to dive into some more topics here in just a minute, man. Okay.